Hey there, and welcome to What The 50 Podcast, a show for women of a certain age, you know who you are, because it's never too late to start living your best life. I'm your host, Cindy Bell. Let's get this started. Here we go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have one of my favorite guests back for a second time on the What The 50 Podcast, Ms. Tammy Colling. Yay! Thank you, Cindy. Thanks for asking me back again. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. You know, I, like I told you the first time, like we're going to need to have you back because it's just way too much to cover too much stuff to, to go over. So just to refresh the listeners memories, we talked about your life, everything leading up to where you found yourself going to prison for 30 years. So could you do like a 90 second recap on who you were before then, and then we'll kind of transition into prison life and all of that. Okay. Um, prior to 1986, I was a paralegal uh, for an insurance company. In 1986, I took a turn. My life took a turn. I was arrested for murder by accountability in Illinois. There were seven of us arrested for the murder of a young man. And I was sentenced to a 60-year prison sentence uh, where I had to do 30 if I got good time. So I went into prison knowing I was going to spend at least three decades and possibly up to six decades in prison, uh, which was basically, I was 22 years old. So that was that was my life. That was my whole life, you know, if I had to do the full 60. Um, I, I behaved myself a little bit and I was able to get the good time. And I was released in 2016 uh, after serving a flat 30 years in prison. Um, it was a new world out here. It was hard. It was difficult to figure out life, especially the pace of life. The pace of life out here had increased like exponentially. Everybody's like so fast. And I launched a publishing house called Words Matter Publishing. Um, from there, because um, I needed to grow and grow fast, we launched the WMP Multimedia Network, where we're working in television with Roku and Amazon Fire. And we're publishing um, magazines as well as books. And this year we're adding uh, services where we'll do social media for people and we'll do podcast production for people. Okay. Amazing. And that's like a, that's people who haven't heard your story or didn't tune into the first episode with you. That's like a fire hose version. So um, I encourage everyone listening to go back and listen to the first podcast version we did with Tammy. Um, and just to quickly refresh everyone, you had a, um, a childhood, a very rough start where your biological mom left you and your siblings in a shack. Yep. I did. She abandoned us, put us in a shack. She was very young woman. Um, she had five children and she, her latest love affair was with a man who didn't want children. So she got rid of her children. Um, that didn't usually happen in the sixties. Um, we were found after several days without food or water, we were found and discovered. Um, and adopted out to separate families. So I carried I with you this. Have you ever reconnected with all those siblings? I found my two sisters. Okay. Um, while I was in prison, I found my brother just strangely enough. He is a lawyer in Chicago. <laughs> so there's the law that comes out because of being a paralegal. Wow. Um, because I found him while I was in prison. Of course, he wanted nothing to do with me. He thought I was crying. You know, I had some kind of scam or something. Maybe I should reach back now. I know right where he's at. The other brother I never found. The two sisters I found, um, I've chosen not to uh, associate with them. Um, they have very different lifestyles. When they, the families that adopted them, a lot of abuse, a lot of problems there. That's so sad. 
Oh my and gosh. It, it has scarred them even more. So um, they were adopted to the same family, actually. Okay. So, so the whole fact that you were abandoned as a young, young child, that theme of abandonment did carry with you throughout much of your life, correct? Yes. It, which is kind of one of the reasons why you paired up with a man who wasn't so good for you. Yeah. Right. Because we do this as women. We, we carry these issues with us and we, we often choose partners that are not healthy for us because our own issues are unresolved. Like we all know that. Right. Right. So you find yourself in, in a situation where you kind of let's, let's be super clear on this uh, charge. You did not pull the trigger. You were not the actual, but you were involved preferably and therefore sentenced. Absolutely. Absolutely. Correct. So from then going in at 22 years old to serve 30 years, you came out at 52 to this whole new world that was, like you said, faster paced. Uh, technology had evolved so exponentially during the period that you were incarcerated that you had to learn everything over. You came out with very little money and you said to yourself, I need to figure this shit out now and make something of my life. Correct? Correct. And you did. I did. I absolutely did. I found, I just happened to be sitting here. Oh, this is, um, I started cleaning my mom's house and I told a little bit nutshell of this and I found my coin collection. And when I left it, it was all, all the coins were in this little envelopes and these big things. My mom had taken all the coins out of the envelopes and put it in her safe. So she put it in this bank bag that is probably several decades old. <laughs> it was probably brand new when she did that. I found it. I asked for permission from my mother, but because she was in her nineties, uh, I didn't want, you know, anybody thinking that was elder abuse, you know, if they yeah. had attributed this as their property, this was a coin collection I had with my father. And I asked my daughters and my mother, could I uh, sell it? Um, I was able to, because it meant something to me. It was an activity my father and I did together. I went into a dealership right there in town that says we buy gold. And I took this bag in with me and I said, is there anything in there that is worth something? I need, I need cash now. And, uh, they took out three coins, um, two $5 gold pieces and one $10 gold pieces and gave me a check for a little over $3,000. And I launched my publishing house with that. With $3,000 having been in prison for 30 years, mm -hmm. you had to relearn life as, yes. as you knew it, right? Yes. So the the story, there's so many stories here. So the story of starting over is huge. And we know, Tammy, that women our age, oftentimes, it doesn't really matter what they've been through in the past, but they find themselves in a position so often in their fifties that they, they need to start over. Yeah. whether it be after a divorce, after the death of a spouse, after a total career change, or something as dramatic as being in prison, which not many people have that experience, having to start over. So the lessons you learned and what you have done, I mean, you are the ultimate example of somebody who started over from nothing, from barely surviving to thriving and beyond, which is pretty much your theme from surviving to thriving, correct? Not just surviving, but thriving. Yes. You just spoke publicly on that. I did. I did. Um, you know, Cindy, when I first got out, um, well, I had divorced in the prison. So uh, in the court proceedings, I was allowed to take back my maiden name, which is Colleen. Mm -hmm. um, 
but the prison, this was actually a, a huge blessing. The prison um, <clears throat> still referred to me by my the, my, the name I was convicted under, which was Fike. And um, so in the prison system and even the parole system, I wasn't choline. So I got out and I started over. So that gave me a little measure of what I call shade from the big bad story and the big bad past. And I always knew it would come out and I was scared of it coming out because I didn't know if my company would survive if it did come out. And um, so my prayer for years was for the first six years of my business was, Lord, please, please, you know, keep my identity hidden until my company can sustain itself. And I came through Shield Maiden with you and you challenged me and, you know, the whole group challenged me, but you guys poured love into me. And even though I was out of prison, there was, I was still carrying a lot of prison with me, namely the stigma and the story that if anybody found out who I was, they wouldn't want to do business with me. But you guys not only got me free from that, but you got me so free that I was able to forgive a mother who abandoned me. Mm. And that's huge. It, it is huge. You carried that with you your whole life, I imagine. I did. I did. And, you know, so uh, not only did you know, you encouraged me to do a TikTok that has been widely successful in the last, you know, uh, three months that I've had it. Um, but also you've encouraged me to do some public speaking and to share my story and you know, I look at it this way now that if anybody can get any type of inspiration from what I went through and the mistakes I made and the struggles of starting over, then I think my my story belongs to them. Wow. I love it. Um, you mentioned TikTok. TikTok is the platform where you really came out just three months ago, like you said, and you just went for it and you launched and I remember telling you, Tammy, it's going to go freaking viral. Be prepared. And you're like, oh, no, who's going to want to listen to me? It's, you know, and it did go viral. I mean, it went, it just blew up within a couple of days. And your story is on TikTok. You've, you've shared so many videos that are just riveting and compelling. So all of you listening, you can find Tammy over on TikTok. Her username is TK. Risen, R-I-Z-E-N. And your also your little um nickname is Dragon Dragonfly, which I love. Um, so you can find Tammy over there. But what I wanted to do is kind of take a few of her TikTok stories and have her share them here, some of her most notable. Um, so first, like going into prison, like the first day you were there, where they took inventory of your things and called certain things contraband and, and that were not acceptable in prison and why, and, and what did that feel like? You know, this is 22 year old going in and you're being strip searched and told, nope, get rid of this because it's contraband. So just kind of walk us through that real quickly. After riding in the back of a patrol car, uh, the Marion County Sheriff's car where I was handcuffed. Now you think of handcuffs like this, but no, they wanted to make sure I was going to prison with a murder sentence. So they put a black box on it. And so that keeps your hands like this. And now over the chain part that would go between the uh, the, the handcuffs, uh, it prohibits you from being able to pick a lock. And then I had a waist chain on. So now I'm like this for seven and a half hours with ankle chains on. They gave me little cartons to drink, but of course you can't you're, you're, you can't drink them. It's like I poured it down me. And it's like, okay, forget it. So for seven and a half hours, I rode like that. And then we pulled up at the prison and I saw it for the first time, the place that I was going to spend the next, you know, three decades. 
And um, it, it was it was a an enlightening moment. It was a hard moment. Got out, was escorted in. I was taken into a little uh, strip search room, little small room. This is a small room, but it's, it was like half the size. And a guard got in my face and put her hand in my face and said, declare your contraband. You're like, what? <laughs> I got this little brown bag I'm holding and it's like all my property from the county jail and I'm trembling and she's being and authoritative. And I'm like, oh gosh, what am I doing here? And <clears throat> so they took the shackles and the handcuffs off of me and I began un unloading my bag. I had an ink pen and a toothbrush and toothpaste and just common everything, a Bible and legal pad. And they went through all my property and she picks up the pen. Well, you can't have this. This is a mechanical pen. And she starts clicking it and she says, you can hook this up to a cassette player and make a tattoo gun with it. I'm like, oh, take the ink pen. I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, does MacGyver right. live? It's like, it was just like crazy. It's like, where did I land? What planet am I on? And then she picks up my toothbrush and it's just a standard, you know, little dollar toothbrush that they gave us in the county jail and uh, with the long handle on it. She's like, you can't have this. You can sharpen it between the bricks and shank someone and kill it. And I'm like, my gosh, take the toothbrush. It was horrible, you know? And then finally she wrote me a property slip for everything else, but um So the what? toothbrush and the pen were permissible in- County jail. Yes. And here's the distinction because in the county jail, you weren't convicted. You were an accused oh, yeah. felon. You were accused criminal, but you hadn't been convicted. Convicted. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's the distinction. So you can have a few more things of property in the county jail than you can have when you enter into the prison environment. Then what happened next? And we went through the strip search. And I mean, it was a strip search. She had the flashlight shining it in crevices. And she wanted to make sure. And, you know, they they have you go through this maneuver of squat and cough, which I got really good at. Um, I, you know, after doing thousands of strip search, you kind of turn it into a dance. You got your hands up, you're flipping through your hair, you turn around, you pick up the bottom of your feet, you bend over and you spread them real fast and hope they, she doesn't tell you to hold that pose for a while. And then you squat and you, you can do all that in a matter of you learn how to do the whole thing in about 15 seconds and you do it so fast that they're just like a blur and they were like oh well you know they're you know most of them knew me but it was very degrading and very hum humiliating I, I was just going to say that it would feel so humiliating to have to do that well and then um and then I I know there was one officer and uh she was even more ridiculous with it there was times with the front of a woman, she would say, spread the lips. I want to see the pink part. That's that how is, she got it. And it was unnecessary. Yeah, that is unnecessary. Yeah. But um, as you learned quickly, guards could do, especially back in the 80s and 90s, right? They got away with a lot more than they do now. Yeah. Yeah, they so, do. To whatever level you are comfortable sharing, Tell us a little bit about the abuse of the guards, what that might have looked like for you. Well, you know, when I arrived at prison, I was just 22 years old, 100 pounds soaking wet, bleach blonde hair. I was just your average Barbie looking girl. And so I became prey to the officers just uh, in the first, you know, 60 days. I was raped multiple times. Um, finally, an older woman um said honey you you just need to get strong this is a part of the sentence was she a prisoner or a guard 
She was she was a prisoner, an older woman, an older black woman came to me, just kind of like everybody's grandma, everybody's, you know, older mother, uh, a figure on the housing unit. She came to me. You just need to get strong because they didn't hide it. They didn't take you off someplace secluded. They just came to your cell. And And so other people witnessed that. Other people heard it, witnessed it. Yeah. They just did it right there at your cell. I can't you're imagine. Crying, and you're crying and screaming or, or asking, pleading the first few times you're pleading for someone to come help. And you you realize after a while that nobody's coming to help you. And these are men, I imagine, that go home to families and wives. Oh, of course. Absolutely. You don't have any idea how many prison babies they produced. And then the inmate would be forced to do a DNC because she had a problem to abort the baby, or if she had the baby, um, she would lose good time. So uh, it wasn't until the late 90s that they actually, maybe the early 2000s, that they actually created the charge in Illinois, custodial sexual misconduct, where for any staff, male or female, it was a felony to have sexual contact contact with an inmate. So it was decades later before this happened. Is that retroactive at all? No, it was not retroactive. Well, I mean, I guess when you think about it, yes, it is. Because there were some women that did come come forward and, and talk about the abuse before. Um, they didn't get very far because they didn't have a lot of proof. It was usually their word against the officers. They tried to, I remember a really powerful attorney in, um, in um, Chicago. There was a woman who wouldn't abort the baby. She was getting out. She would be released pregnant. She wow. powered up as a powerful attorney and did get out and have the baby. And the DNA came back to the officer. But he never somehow or another, the lawsuit fell apart and the inmate didn't get anything. Did you did you ever attempt to to expose any of these men? When I was first incarcerated, no, I didn't. I didn't know what to do. I tried talking to my family a little bit about it when they came on a visit and um, they didn't know what to do. I tried talking to an attorney about it. And he's like, Tammy, put your head down. Keep your head down. Just keep your head down. And he, and he actually told me, he said, eventually they'll find somebody else to pick on. Anyway, um, so there wasn't much I could do. Later on, in later years, after I'd been incarcerated for several years, um, I had another male staff. It wasn't an officer and it's an administrator um, assault me. And I took him on head to toe. Uh, I, I went for it. I, I reported it. And then I spent six months in segregation for having uh, consensual sex with a male officer or a male staff member. Unbelievable. What because is segregation? Segregation is where you're in jail, like a county jail inside the jail. So it's segregation. I served six months in segregation, lost all my privileges, all my property, everything I for reporting him. So he, it's, it's solitary confinement, basically. Exactly. Okay. So it wasn't to protect you. It was to punish you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously, obviously, that's all very traumatic. I can't imagine. So that adds insult to injury to your already traumatic life. Um, so it was there a point in prison where you just kind of, made a switch mentally said, I've got to figure out how to survive this place. And I'm going to get really savvy. And do you remember what happened at that point? 
Well, there's something leading up to it. I actually, uh, that, that led up to it is, um, I decided I'm out. I'm done. I'm through. My direct appeal was denied. That was at three years. My direct appeal was denied and I took an overdose. I ended up in the, in a coma in the hospital. My family was brought in. They said, this is it. She'll never, she won't make it. And if she does come through, um, she'll never even know her name. Uh, she'll be a vegetable. And, um, I had a God encounter and I came back and I faced it. And my father came to sit down with me shortly after that, after I was back into the prison population, he came and sat down with me and he says, Tammy, what are you going to have to show at the end of 30 years for your life? You can't waste 30 years of your life. And he began to challenge me. And that was the pivotal part. It was my escape mechanism was death. And he was like, you don't get to escape in any fashion. What you have to do is you have to learn to survive in here and rise above it. So he gave you a huge gift. He did. And so he said, Tammy, you've got to figure out how to make this work for you, essentially, and 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 make it count. And when you get out. Have something to show for it. Yes. And which you did. So while in prison, you got a few different degrees, correct? Yes. I got a bachelor's of Christian education, a bachelor's of divinity, a bachelor's of pastoral th theology and a master's of divinity. I published two books. I became, it became that I worked with the director's office to implement programs inside the prison. Um, some of those programs, just for an example, is like, you know, the biggest loser was all over TV at the time. So I created a biggest loser program inside the prison for the women. And they would come every day and work out and they changed, they got special food at in the chow hall and everything. So we implemented that. We did like a, like Glee was a big TV program. So we did a mass choir and I, and it wasn't always, you know, gospel music. I, I know one of our themes was Motown. So we had a mass choir performance uh, that was all Motown and it was great fun. And it gave the women something to do. Uh, some of the programs that I implemented are still being used right now in the pro in the prison, including the Baker's apprenticeship program. And so but, you must have really, <laughs> garnered some trust and respect from the administration that they let you run programs, create and run programs as a prisoner. I did. <laughs> In fact, the inmates called me Warden Fike. That was my last name. And the guards called me that too. The, the warden would come in and sit on my bed. Hey, what's going on, Warden Fike? And I mean, they called me that. They knew I ran the prison. <laughs> See, that's you know, just, it, yeah, fascinating. In a good way, you know, um, and, and I'm not going to tell you that that it was easy to get in that position because I got on their nerves and they realized that it was best to harness me than to piss me off. <laughs> so they um, they leveraged you and you leveraged them. That's what it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like when I wanted to go to college, uh, they told me that um, when I wanted to do correspondence schooling, they told me, no, that's not allowed. And I said, well, show it to me in the directives. I'd worked for the prison law library for a long time. I'd studied these directives. And it's like, show it to me. You know, an inmate has uh, an opportunity to pursue education outside of the prison. I said, that's what correspondence schooling is. So they had to get a ruling on it from the director's office. And they're like, she's right. Let her do it. Wow. But then they're like, let her do it. Give her permission to do it. But sh she has to pay for it. So I had to pay for my college. So I worked as a ghostwriter to be able to pay for my college while I was in prison. This is going to be a weird question. Do you sometimes feel like prison in some really strange and twisted way saved you because you were married to somebody who was not good for you? 
somebody who was dealing drugs, right? What would your path and trajectory have been? Would you, do you think you would have gotten those degrees? Do you think you would have gained all the skills, uh, life skills that you did? And I'm not saying, oh, thank goodness you went to prison at all. But if you look at it as a gift in some weird way, what do you extract from that? Cindy, my life was spiraling out of control. I was on a, I, I was in, this was my second marriage and uh, much like you, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't get divorced. Who gets divorced twice? And I was like, what kind of woman am I, if I get divorced twice and my life was spiraling out of control. I remember having this, uh, this moment, um, the church that I had grown up in had sent me at Easter, this little Lenten thing where you put all the coins in and the dollar in the thing and you mail it back in. And I, uh, boy, I was going to be a good person because I was going to put those quarters in that slot. I was going to put that $10 bill in that thing. And I was going to mail that back in. I was going to be a good person. And Easter passed and Lenten passed. And I saw that it shoved in a corner of my desk and it broke me. Hmm. And I looked up to, I said, if you're real and you're really up there, I want a different life. I prayed 10 days later, I was arrested for murder. I was in a dirty, filthy, rat and roach infested prison cell. And I looked up on the heating vent in the cell and it said, God, it was carved in the, in this heating vent. It said, God is in this place. And I said, are you kidding me? God wouldn't be caught dead here. It's too dirty. I thought I knew so much about God that he wouldn't go to someplace dirty, but he came to me in that prison cell. And it was, and, and I also looked up and I said, this is not what I had in mind. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. Yeah. But it was an answer to my prayer. This is not what I had in mind. I learned to get real specific in my answer, my prayers. I bet bet. the people you're affecting now, I've seen it firsthand and it's only going to snowball and get exponentially huge, but I've seen the women and men that you have affected in profound ways already just in the short time that I've known you. And so in a weird way, you can call it a gift. Am I right? It is. And, you know, um, I couldn't do what I'm doing right now if it wouldn't have been for the prison experience. And here's why <clears throat> they put me in charge of programs and I would launch a program, get the biggest loser go. And they'll be like, OK, fight, find somebody to turn that over to. And I was like, what? I put my heart in this. Yeah. And I'd have to give the program to somebody else. And they're like, but we need you to start another program. This is this is only good for 100 inmates. We got twelve hundred. So I'd have to give the program away and put somebody else in charge of it. And then I'd start this. I put my heart into it and I'd figure out a way to make it work. And I, when I mean make it work, it's like we were, I worked out the logistics. You had to have line movements to where this line never crossed this line. High um, max security couldn't cross the medium security. I did all of this. I did all the security, moved the lines to chow and back, uh, all kinds of line movements. I did it all. Here's how you run your program, launch it. They would sign off on it and say, let her do it. And, you know, it kind of ticked off some of the officers like, Oh, here she goes. This is another fight program. Yeah. But, and I get it up and running for six months or something. They'd be like, okay, turns up, turn it over to somebody. But now that's what I do. I have the publishing house. I have a TV network. We're going to be doing podcasting. We have the production team, you know, that's what I do. I start something, get and and I'm always the hub of it. And I couldn't have done that without the prison experience. You know, I showed you the little bag of coins because I just happened to be sitting at that desk. But, um, you know, I started as a, I shared this in Michigan last week. I started as a freelancer. And as soon as I could get online with my little bag of coins, I bought my little router and my little laptop. And I got online. I started, found one of these freelance sites 
I put myself out there and I put up my gig profile and uh, I was bidding on jobs that I had no clue how to do, but I need the money. You and it out. I, I would Google it. As soon as I landed the job, I would Google it. I would watch a couple of YouTube videos and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do this job and I'm going to get this little money. And so you learn that you can develop the skill sets you need for any time. So if somebody's starting over right now and nothing you already know works for you, you can develop a new skill set. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what you've been through. You can develop the skill set to thrive. You really can. And so that's a perfect segue into a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, let's talk about skill sets. I mean, cooking dinner in a dryer. It's just, yeah. you had to learn how to do things really outside the box and really creatively inside prison. So give us a few examples. And this is just the more light side of what you experienced, you know, maybe some comic relief or, or diversion from the very real, the, the reality of how crazy prison life can be. What are some of those more light hearted things you can share? So basically, you know, the step is that, you know, uh, if you want it bad enough, you can figure out a way to do it. And one of the things was in prison was you got on these crazy waiting lists to get to the beauty shop and get your hair cut. And I've got this baby fine crap. And if it gets too long, it just looks stringy. And I didn't want to walk around looking like that. Um, so I looked for a cutting implementation. When I first got there, they had these little plastic, you've all seen them at Walmart, these little Crayola scissors yeah. that you could check them out from the, C the CO, uh, go to hand in your ID badge, check out the tool, go cut your hair, bring it back, get your ID badge back. But then they took the Crayola scissors from us. So <laughs> no more kindergarten scissors. So I decided now, how am I going to cut my hair? So I began to search around. It's like, what do I have that'll cut? What do I have that? And I found my nail clippers. I'm just like, uh huh. So you learned how to just pull that hair out in the mirror and get the length you want and just clip right here, clip right across. And you could do it to where you're pulling out, you know, at any at any angle out here, you're getting the right, you're holding it and you're going right up it and you're clipping and you learn how to cut your hair. So it takes a while longer. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Now, could you have other inmates saying, hey, will you cut my hair? <laughs> I did all the time. I had all the time people coming to me to cut the hair. And it's like, sometimes I would, sometimes I would help out. I remember my daughter, they had a camping program come uh, in the, in the summertime. And my daughter was really, I had two daughters, one and five when I went to prison and they came to camp one year with me <laughs> and they arrived and my daughter had taken her bangs and gone straight up with the scissors. You know, every kid does that at some yes. time. Yes. So I took her in the tent and I got out my nail clippers and I cut her hair into a really cute haired style. And then she goes back to school. My mommy cut my hair with nail clippers. And they're like, well, why would she do that? Why didn't she use scissors? Because she's in prison. Well, that opened a can of worms. <laughs> yeah. So your, your girls were aware the entire time where you were and why? Well, they didn't really understand the why for a long time. But yes, yes. And they came to see me uh, and, you know, maintain contact with me throughout the pretty much the entire incarceration. You know, kids have that that age. Each one of them went through a stage where I'm not going back. I don't want anything to do with her. So we had these little rough spells, but other than that, yes. I mean, that's a whole nother topic that we probably won't spend too much time on because I know it's probably super sensitive, but like even my own kids, I was not in prison and they would get so angry at me for so many things where they didn't want to talk to me or whatever. So the whole dynamic of being in prison, I mean, that must've been heartbreaking as a mom 
not being able to see your girls, trying to control the narrative that I'm sure they were hearing. You couldn't control it. I mean, that's just. And they, we had all the trial transcripts and my dad had taken them up to, to or my parents raised my girls, had taken them up to the attic of the house. And my youngest daughter had fit figured out how to pull down the ladder in the garage and climb up there. You know, she was old enough to read and everything. And one day he looked for her and she would pull the ladder back up. So nobody would know she was up there. Wow. And one day he looked for her and he heard something and he climbed up there and she was reading the transcripts. So it was, you know, and we had moments where I, I didn't get to really mother them right. and be a part of the good, but I had to be the disciplinarian when they were acting so that, that drove a wedge. It's like, you're grounded because you did this to your grandparents or you did this at school. And they, my parents would put them and finally had to tell my parents, I said, I can't be the disciplinarian. You have to be that. Were you able to see them at least uh, once a week or once a month? How, how did that look like? No, they were seven and a half hours away. <gasps> okay. So my dad uh, was a pilot. Um, and so he figured out a way there was a little... Uh, there was a farmer right outside the prison in, in the prison community that had his own little private landing strip, a grass strip. So in bad weather, we couldn't use it. But uh, he he went out there and he talked to him and he said, uh, my daughter's in prison and she's going to be there for decades. And these are her girls. What I'd like to do is drive a vehicle up and leave it here on your farm, park it out of the way, fly in, land, drive out to the prison, drive back, leave the vehicle and fly home. And the farmer was very accommodating. And that went on for years. So a seven and a half hour flight, a drive became uh, each way, mind you, became a one hour flight each way. Wow. So that that gave me a lot more access to my my children. And so I'd see them probably twice a month. Okay. That's a whole that's a whole nother topic. I mean, I can't imagine. So, okay, now going back to cutting your hair with clippers, <laughs> making food in the clothes dryer. And you guys, you can find all this on TikTok because she's done all these videos, crazy videos on TikTok. Where, so if you want more, just go there. But tell us about cooking in a food dryer. Well, uh, we had a director called Donald Pete Snyder who actually went to prison um, for a pay to play, uh, money laundering or something, uh, embezzling funds or something. Uh, anyway, he decided to come in and he had the mindset of, I'm going to make it so bad in here that nobody's ever going to want to come back. Dude didn't get the memo. None of us wanted to be there. And we certainly, <laughs> you know, it's like making it worse is not, but I mean, he did some bizarre things. And so one of the things he did was he took away all of our cooking uh, implementations like uh, the hot pots and the microwaves and they had little toaster ovens and little Bunsen burners you could check out with pots and pans you could check out from on the housing units you could cook and they sold us food at the commissary that we could cook so we didn't stop selling the food that we could cook but he stopped selling and he took away all of the tools to cook with so I had all this food in my commissary box under my bed mm. I thought I'm not wasting that uh, so I walked through the housing unit one day, walked it. I was looking for a heat source. Where can I get my food hot at? How do I make my food hot? And I walked into the laundry room and I was like, bingo, got it. So I devised a way to cook my food in the clothes dryer. <laughs> Watch it on TikTok. I actually like do it. A, like on a shelf type <laughs> situation, yeah. right? You put, huh? you put it like on a shelf type situation inside the, inside the dryer or. You haven't seen the video. <laughs> I, I did. I started watching that, but I thought you said. 
No, I, I wrap it up in a bag, a trash bag. Oh, oh. I just throw it in. And the video two is it's tumbling okay. with the clothes. Okay. It's tumbling with the I'm clothes. I'm going to have to go back and watch that one. Um, <laughs> fascinating. So what else? Like what are, what other tips and tricks did you learn? Well, uh, one of the times I was working in the bakery and um, all of, and this was, this was fun doing scratch baking for 1200 people. That's a challenge. Um, but uh, all the girls were like, Tammy, we want this. Tammy, we want that. I remember uh, making blueberry muffins, getting a church to donate blueberries and making blueberry muffins for 1200 women. And one lady came up to me crying with tears in her eyes and said, I haven't eaten a blueberry in 25 years. Thank you. And so it was impacting their lives that somebody would go to the extremes of doing it. But the ladies wanted pizza. They wanted real pizza. So to make pizza, you had to have yeast. Well, yeast is contraband because you can make hooch, which is homemade wine with it. So I talked to my supervisor and I said, if I can grow my own yeast, can I make pizza dough? And he says, Fike, if you can pull that off, go for it. You got my permission. Shouldn't have told me that. Um, so I took two cups of flour, two cups of sugar, two cups of hot water, stirred it up in a plastic bowl and set it in the bread room because I'd learned, I'd, I'd done my, uh, it's a scientific proven fact that yeast is in the air, especially around a source of bread. So I did, I put it in there and two weeks later, it's growing, it's frothy, it's bubbly. It's alive. It had captured the wild yeast in the air in the bread room. And I started a sourdough starter and I made pizza dough for 1200 people. And uh, actually on the night that we were serving it for the first time, there were so many staff there. We were, we had to have 1500 slices. We made individual pizzas about this big and the cooks, you know, I just made the dough and, and pre-cooked them. And when I got to 1500, the cooks brought them out of the freezer and made them and, and the women loved it. Absolutely loved it. So I started making homemade cinnamon rolls and croissants and everything so well. My name got out there so well with the product that the director's office in Springfield was like, hey, we have that lady send us like uh, 24 croissants. And this is where the shift took place. Uh, they came and told me, you got to make 24 croissants for the director's office. And I was like, I can't. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I don't have any sourdough starter. I've just got like a cup left. I've used it on the last project. I've got to grow it again. And so they called the director's office and said, no, she doesn't have it. And they said, give that lady all the yeast she wants. So now yeast was allowed in my bakery. (laughs) And it's still to this day because somebody wanted croissants. Amazing. Yeah. This is why you know how to do everything. I mean, I swear every time (laughs) there's this a problem, you find the solution because you're a very solution oriented person. And I'm sure that everything you went through in prison made you that way. You might've been that way before. If you were, it just strengthened that in you. It did. I grew up, my father was an electrical contractor by trade and I would play in his office on the floor with my toys while he's doing bids. And in, in electricity, it's connecting this wire with that switch on the wall or this outlet and it's connecting things. And so I grew up hearing my dad talk about connecting things and solving problems and troubleshooting why a business is, uh, you know, electricity wasn't working in a certain place. And so interesting. It prepped me. (laughs) Did you ever feel like you really didn't fit in with the other prisoners that you looked at them and you knew you were not better than, but different 
Cindy, I worked myself into a, a, a position to where I had more privileges than probably any other inmate in the in the prison system. But I never felt better than them. I felt like I had a responsibility to use that position to help them. And, uh, oh, sure, there's a few that I probably sliced and diced and julienne fried with a few words <laughs> you know, and let them know that... Um, it ain't happening. I'm not the one, you know, but after the most through the initial, you know, entry and a couple of years of just getting your feet under you, did the inmates all look at you as the, the leader? Did they respect you? It's, no, they still challenged me for a long time until I was put in a position to where they needed me, such as the personal property position. In other words, you want your magazines that's yeah. coming in from home, you got to go through me. Uh, you need that that appeal file, direct appeal file. You're going through me, and so when that happened, it was it was a it was a neutralizing factor. Everybody's they knew, you know, for the most part, uh, they knew that she's not the one to mess with. Are you when you need her, she won't be there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get in those positions for that purpose, but it just turned out to work out that way. And you worked at, in the you said the library. The law library for a long time as a paralegal. A paralegal. Where did you learn the paralegal skills? There? I was I was a paralegal before I was incarcerated at, for an insurance company. But that my job there was um, basically just looking at uh, insurance documents and finding loopholes in it. So that, w- that was my positioning back then. So you did you get into the whole um, advocating for wrongly accused people while you were still incarcerated or did that come after? Well, when I was working in the prison law library, you're filing legal documents. I mean, you're filing writ of certiorari all the way up to the United States Supreme Court on behalf of inmates. And uh, so, yes, and we, many of the times we had to, we had to research that. If there was new evidence for a post-conviction petition, we're researching it right there from prison. We put together a little network of people all throughout the state. In other words, this inmate has family members down here and this inmate has family members here. And we built a network so that if I needed an affidavit from a person down in Mount Vernon, Illinois, I knew which inmate had had family members there. And we would have them go to that witness and get a statement from them. And we built a very, uh, very strong network of people so that we could get the evidence we needed or to open up these cases. And I was successful in opening up some cases um, and getting some sentences overturned. I had a lady who was uh, a lifer and I, she had a multiple murder conviction uh, under the accountability law. She was dying of AIDS and I got her out and erased her entire conviction. Her entire conviction. And her entire conviction was overturned. Um, it was a speedy trial violation and uh, the attorney, uh, because it was a highly politicized case, uh, the attorney wouldn't file for it. And I ended up having to take his law license while I'm a law clerk in prison. I had to take his law license away from him in order to overturn this case for the speedy trial. And they just totally erased the conviction. Wow. And and it's just a strange case because uh, they were shoplifting. Four of them were shoplifting at a mall. They ran, they were getting chased by the police. The three women and one men man. They ran for the car. She jumped in the back of the, of the seat. She's in the middle of the back, two women on each side of her and the man's driving in high speed chase. They hit a, a car that happened to belong to the wife 
and two children of the head prosecutor and killed them all. Felony murder rule. Sad, sad situation. But in my eyesight, her actions did not warrant that sentence. She couldn't get out of the car. She's locked in by people. She's not the driver. That was not the intended purpose. The intended purpose was to get a shoplift from a very well white mall, and they were all black. And anyway, bad situation. Anyway, we overturned her case. From your experience, what percentage, if you could assign it a percentage, of inmates maybe are wrongfully convicted or maybe not wrongfully convicted, but the the court or the, the jury didn't have all the information. And what do you think? Well, I believe that um, wrongfully convicted in the prison system is probably about 25%. Do you really? um, people that were maybe given a sentence too excessive for the crime because of the political uh, atmosphere or climate at the time, you're getting up there to 70 and 80%. Right. Um, you know, and don't get me wrong, there are people that belong in prison and the world is a better place with them in prison. And I would I would never advocate for their release. And and, and I want to make this super clear. You are pro-law, pro-law enforcement. Absolutely. You're pro-rules. <laughs> yes, I, I, I stand with the blue. I don't want to live in a world without law enforcement. I didn't want to live in a prison where the the number of officers is so outnumbered by the prison um, population. You want law and order. You want control. That's the only way you you can have your house or the property in it. Sure. Yeah. Or be safe to just go buy groceries. Looking at all your TikTok videos, which one do you feel like inspired people the most, got the most positive feedback, made the biggest impact? Well, you know, when I first started, I went back to the prison. You actually see my very first TikToks. I, I actually drove to the prison and went there and those were very effective, but uh, one day I just walked outside the house and I just said, you know, I'm going from a six foot cell to an 8,000 square foot home. And, you know, when I got out of prison, I, within 12 months, I was a six figure company. Now that inspired people. People wanted to know how they thought I was actually going to have some kind of a business plan that they could, you know, become a part of, um, uh, that got over a little, a little over a million views. Um, I still get a lot of comments on it, but, um, I think that inspired people, um, I think the overcomer aspect of it inspires people. So what's next for you, Tammy? You're building this huge company. I think what's next for me is number one, I have to find, I have to do what they taught me to do in prison. And I have to throw the ball for the TV agency into the hands of this person and the ball for this. And I have to throw the ball. I have to pass the ball. Uh, so far, I haven't passed the ball too well. <laughs> that that needs to happen uh, so that I can just, you know, uh, kind of call the shots from the bench and let let the game play out on the floor. I have to do that. I, I do want to expand a little bit in inspirational speaking. I'm actually scheduled to go into a max prison for men in February. It'll be the first time going back inside. They have a program there where these men have been working on uh, an entrepreneurial program. They've been taught how to get their business plan together. And so a team of us that are ex-offenders are going inside and we're going to be like the shark tank, whether their, um, their entrepreneurial program would be 
yes, I'd buy into that or no, I wouldn't, or that's not going to work for this reason. So we're going to be the judges of their, their program that they've done. I just teamed up actually from TikTok with the organization that's created this program. So again, you guys follow her on TikTok, TK Risen, T-K-R-I-Z-E-N, fascinating stories. People start watching you and they can't stop. To wrap this up, if you can come out of prison after 30, you know, 30 years incarcerated and do what you've done, basically anybody can do anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the thriving mindset. It's the anything is possible mindset. And if you don't have that mindset, you'll never do anything. You have to. People ask me, how did I do it? And I said, I, I didn't have a choice. I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. I had to, I, ha, I could get out of prison. I could either go up or I could go back. Yep. Check out the recidivism rates. I, I wouldn't play in that game. <laughs> how can people book you for events, speaker um, coaching? How can they find you besides TikTok? Well, basically, um, my email address is Tammy at wordsmatterpublishing.com. Um, you can fill out a contact form on any of my websites, WMP Multimedia Network, um, Words Matter Publishing, fill out a contact form there. It's going to it's going to land in my lap. But uh, I am I've just been coached by <laughs> uh, Vandana and said, Tammy, you need you need your own website, your own personal website so people can find you specifically. Um, oh, yeah. so I'm, I'm working sure. on it. <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah, I'll put all your contact info here. And so our, our listeners can find you. But once again, Tammy, thank you so much. You know, Cindy, I also want to thank you because you kind of pushed me. You saw something in me. You pushed me at Shield Maiden. You pushed me at Shield Maiden so much. I was almost ready to punch her, folks. Literally, <laughs> like, get out of my face. <laughs> and she stuck right there. Like, go ahead and swing, honey, because I got you. <laughs> she stayed right in my face. Um, anyway, and then you pushed me to go ahead and start sharing my story. And it was the right push success is the best revenge. It really is. Get back up, get get back in the ball game, show everybody who you really are. And, you know, I'm challenging people now that I'm speaking to, it's like my dad said, what are you going to have to show for uh, 30 years of your life? I'm going to ask everybody that's watching this right now, what are you going to have to show at the end of 2023? Cindy's going to ask you that question on her platform at the end of 2023, and you're all going to chime in and you're going to put in what you have to show at the end of 2023. I love it. Good challenge. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And please, if you enjoyed the program today, please feel free to share. I appreciate you. Get out there and start living your best damn life. Until next time, take care.